today on Against the Grain, mass shootings and other forms of person-on-person violence fill the headlines, but what less visible and perhaps more insidious forms of violence exist? I'm CS. The sociologist Barbara Chasen discusses her book, Inequality and Violence in the United States, Casualties of Capitalism, coming right up. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. Structural racism may be part of your lexicon, but what about structural violence? In what ways do structures generate violence, and which structures are we talking about? There's also, according to Barbara Chasen, organizational violence, another kind that doesn't get much media attention. So how do we make sense of the often surreptitious ways in which violence is inflicted? What does economic inequality and what does our capitalist system have to do with less visible forms of violence? Can't we characterize much of what harms people, auto collisions and building collapses, for example, as accidents? Barbara Chasen is Professor Emerita of Sociology at Montclair State University. Her book, Inequality and Violence in the United States, Casualties of Capitalism, just came out in its third edition. Violence is defined therein to include acts, intentional or not, that result in physical harm to another person or persons. When Barbara Chasen and I connected recently, I brought up President Bill Clinton's warning in 1993 that the U.S. faced an epidemic of violence. What kind of violence, I asked Barbara, was Clinton referring to? Clinton took off from a, an incident that happened in the Long Island Railroad where um, a gunman uh, seeking revenge for something that had happened to him uh, shot a number of passengers on the train. And Clinton used that as an example of how interpersonal violence, he didn't use that term obviously, um, was, was rampant. And generally when politicians talk about violence, they're always talking about Um, what I would call street crime, interpersonal violence. Um, And there is a lot of that in the United States, more than in other countries. But there's a lot more people who are harmed by the other kinds of violence that my book talks about, which is organizational and structural violence, and which is rooted in our capitalist economic system, which goes to the subtitle of my book, which is casualties of capitalism. Another type of violence you identify in this book is organizational violence. What's that? Organizational violence is violence that is rooted in bureaucracies generally, corporations, government agencies, uh, agencies that are obviously um, connected to violence like the military and the police. But organizational violence is very much a product of corporations and how they're run, what the motivations of their executives are, not their personal motivations, not their personalities per se, but the goals they are trying to reach for which their organizations have been established, which is basically profit. And it's that profit motive that leads to a lot of violence. With organizational violence, is a a particular person the target? No. um, In interpersonal violence, people know who they're harming, and they generally intend to harm that person. Maybe not always, as with sort of random shootings or when a bystander gets killed in a way accidentally. But there's no, there's no intent to harm anybody in organizational or structural violence. But the harm is an outcome of the decisions that were made, except with two exceptions, of course. The military intends to harm people, and the police often mean to harm people. Yeah, you're right that anonymous members of groups such as consumers of certain products or workers in certain occupational situations become the victims of 
organizational violence. Elaborate on that. Well, when a company decides to market an unsafe product, then people are going to be harmed by it. When the um, government officials in Flint, Michigan decided that they would stop using safe water for the water needs of the residents of Flint and instead would use water from the contaminated Detroit River because it saved money, um, they didn't necessarily mean to harm the residents of Flint, but it was an outcome and it was an outcome they could have actually known about, but it wasn't there. They didn't do it. It's not like if some, some person with um, some mental problems decided to drop poison into a town's water supply, meaning to hurt people in that town, then we would be aghast and that person would be punished if they could be caught. But this was just routine decision-making by the officials of Flint. So that, that's at the gov a government, the local government issue. But a very recent example would be what was in, in the, the papers the other day, where once again, it was shown that the executives in fossil fuel companies knew perfectly well that their product um, was causing climate change, global warming to be more specific. And um, we all know the harm that's been, you know, been a result of climate change, global warming. And people have died, species are becoming extinct, um, communities are facing floods, you know, they, the list goes on and on, and I don't have to elaborate on the consequences of, of global warming here, but they don't mean to cause floods and fires and air pollution and all of the other things that happen as a result of our reliance on fossil fuel, but that's what happens. So that, that I think, is a, is a pretty good example. And there, there's no punishment for that. We don't demand that they change. We don't demand they be punished. We don't demand that something be done so that this doesn't happen again. The destruction is incredible. You know, people talk about a new epoch in human history, the Anthropocene, where human actions are resulting in tremendous changes to the planet. You focus on the expected behavior of some of these people, right? The heads of bureaucracies, the heads of corporations. You talked about the emphasis in corporate circles and settings on, on profits. I take it that's part of what you mean when you bring capitalism into discussions of violence, into discussions of what causes violence? Absolutely. Capitalism is, is built on the profit motive. What's good for a, a capitalist enterprise, i.e. making money, is supposed to be good for the society as a whole. Well, maybe sometimes it is. We get new products that can enhance life, for example. But we also get, we get behaviors that do not have as a goal social responsibility. An executive's own job is dependent on their ability to meet the goals of their company. And the goal of that company is uh, profit. And how do you make money? Do you make it by making safe, affordable products? Do you make money by creating affordable housing, for example, to list the problem that's widespread throughout this country? Do you make a profit by um, lowering the cost of your of pharmaceuticals so that people can afford to get the medication they need and so on and on and on. Profit seeking is not necessarily the way to achieve a uh, healthy and safe society for the majority of, of people. And because corporations have so much money, increasing amounts, they are able to influence the political process in ways that further enhance their ability to do those things that can bring harm to the rest of us. Barbara Chasen is her name. She's Professor Emerita of Sociology at Montclair State University. We're talking about her book, Inequality and Violence in the United States, 
Casualties of Capitalism, which just came out in its third edition. I'm CS, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. So we've talked about interpersonal violence, we've talked about organizational violence, and you also write extensively in this book about structural violence. What is structural violence? Structural violence is in some ways um, the hardest to explain and, and look at because with interpersonal violence, at least in principle, you have a perpetrator, you have a victim, and you can sort of recount what happened. With organizational violence, you can, as I, as I do in the book, point to very specific examples of harmful products, decisions that were made that inevitably lead to harm to communities, to consumers. With structural violence, what you have is the result of decades often, certainly years of decision-making by government agencies and officials, by corporations that result in people having less access to healthy and safe lives than they would have if different decisions had been made. Um, racism is a, is a good example of this. Because of decades of racist decisions in the United States, um, people of color have been placed into positions that make them more vulnerable to all kinds of organizational violence. For example, um, because of the way in which housing and neighborhoods have been constructed and the racist decisions that went behind um, much of that, um, people of color are likely to be living in neighborhoods where there's much higher rates of pollution and with all of the health consequences of that. Now, nobody set out to sort of poison people of color by seeing that their air was less clean than that of white people, but that's been the consequence. Anything that we can trace back over time, where you can identify particular individuals who made those decisions, although I, I suppose historians could talk about you know, Supreme Court decisions and particular political decisions that were made, but, but generally that's a much more complicated business than the other two kinds of violence. But that's the way the system's been organized. So, so one commonality between organizational and structural violence seems to be that it results from decisions of social and political elites. Fair to say? It's fair to say. And it's also, I would say, that structural violence is the outcome of many decades, usually, of organizational decisions, which themselves probably resulted in violence, but maybe of a short, shorter term. But the structural violence is, is a result of the accumulation of decisions that have been made. Barbara, how do the rates of organizational violence and structural violence compare with rates in other countries? Do we have data on that? Yes, we do. And I have um, so, for example, one example of structural violence is um, road accident deaths. The United States is um, much worse in that connection than other countries. I have a, I have a list of 15 countries. They're comparable in terms of uh, being advanced, developed capitalist countries. So countries like Canada, Finland, Australia, Switzerland, and so on. And I compare the United States to them on, on several measures of structural violence, one of which is road accidents. The U.S. is the worst on that. Infant mortality, which is the number of infants out of every thousand who die before the age of one. Um, the United States is the worst on that, which with African-American infants having higher rates than white infants, but even white infants dying at higher rates than infants in comparable countries. Um, we did worse in coronavirus deaths out of uh, every 100,000 people, we had a higher rate. Another measure I use, which maybe we don't want to get into, but carbon footprints, and, and that's related to how much really uh, carbon emissions there are in the air, which leads 
to various health consequences as well as global warming, which we talked about before. So all of those are examples of structural violence. And all of those we have out of 15 countries, we are the worst. So we're at number 15 if 15 is the bottom. Well, let me ask you about road accidents because a lot of people would say, well, those are accidents. That's not intentional or maybe even unintentional violence. What does organizational structural violence have to do with people getting into accidents and dying as a pedestrian or as a driver or as a passenger, to which you would say? Well, I would, I would say the title of a, of a book by a person whose name I can't think of right now, although I have it somewhere. Um, she wrote a book called There Are No Accidents, that, that what we call accidents are actually the results of deliberate decisions. It's somewhat random who it happens to and when it ha exactly it happens, but it's in a way predictable. So public transportation is safer than private automobile transportation. Why don't we have more public transportation? That's a result of decisions that have been made over a number of, of times. Why don't we have safer vehicles? Some vehicles would, were deliberately built like the Pinto, no, and you know maybe that's not around anymore, but while it was, it killed people burn them to death. Um, that was a result of a decision that was made by the um, Ford Motor Company. With, I should say, and this is in your book, with the full knowledge of the Ford executives who knew that the rear of these cars would explode into fire upon impact, right? Right. Inequality is a, a big theme in this book. Um, you write that the U.S. is more unequal than any other advanced capitalist country. How is inequality measured? It's measured in a couple of ways. One of the one way it's measured that I use in the book is there's something called the Gini index, which um, is a number that varies from one to a hundred or it's a decimal going from zero to one. So you could have various points in between. 0.5 would be more unequal than 0.2, for example. Um, so the Gini index um, if the total income of the country, what's called the gross national income, so the value of all the goods and services that are produced, how is that divided among the population? If it was totally equal so that everybody in the country got the same amount, then it would be an index of one. If it was a hundred, it would mean one person got everything, and obviously that neither of those things happen. But the numbers in between indicate to what extent um, the national income is distributed among a population of a country. So there, that's that's one way to measure it. It's called the Gini in index of income inequality. You can also look at per capita income in different countries, where you're again taking the total. Um, income of a country and distributing it for the absolute number by everybody in the country. So if everybody in the country got an equal share of the national income, how much would they get? The United States is pretty bad on that too. Uh, how much does the top 10% get versus the, the bottom 50%? In the United States, the figure I have, the top 10% at the time is table was created, which was 2020, I think it's gotten worse. The top 10% of the United States, so 10% of the population was getting 46% of the national income, nearly half. So 10% were getting nearly half. The bottom half were getting 13%. So we're pretty bad on that. My guest is Barbara Chasen, C-H-A-S-I-N. She is a sociologist. She was based for many years at Montclair State University, and she is the author of Inequality and Violence in the United States, Casualties of Capitalism. The second edition of the book won the Best Book of the Year Award from the Marxist section of the American Sociological Association, and the third edition of that book just came out. You are listening to Against the Grain on 
Pacifica Radio. I'm C.S. Song. So how does inequality lead to violence in your view? Well, one of the ways it leads to violence is when a few people have a great deal, um, they're going to want to have that situation continue. And how do, how do you have that situation continue? It has to be through political decisions. What's the taxation system? Are you being taxed heavily if you make a lot more than somebody else? And is that taxation money being used to provide social services that make people's lives healthier and safer? Or are you using your wealth to make sure that you don't have to pay a lot of taxes? Are you using your wealth? And here when I say, are you, I'm thinking of organizations, not just individuals, to see to it that you're not heavily regulated, that you are do not have to put in expensive um, safety measures, etc. And at the other end, if you're at the lower end of the scale, what kind of power do you have? Well, if you're a worker, you could have a lot more power than you usually do if you're a member of an organization of your own, a labor union. There's been a systematic attack on, on unionization in the United States. That's one of the reasons for our greater economic inequality. And it's one of the reasons why the working class, which is includes, I would say for our purposes, everybody who works for a living basically, um, is, is more vulnerable to um, the kinds of violence I talk about than those who are in the capitalist class or the ruling class, to use Marx's expression, to talk about the people who, who are the owner, ownership class and who therefore have a great deal of political power who control to a large extent the political processes. And it's a constant struggle for the have-nots to have more control over what's happening. One thing you point out is that high levels of inequality are associated with weaker social ties. What's important about that? One of the things that inequality means is that people lead very different kinds of social lives. They're not connected with each other. They don't necessarily empathize with each other or understand each other's problems. Um, if you're in an organization like a, like a corporation you're, and you're a wealthy CEO, there's social distance between you and the people your corporation is going to affect. So you don't, you don't see the harm that your decisions produce. And when you know, what you don't see is not very likely to affect you. Um, I'll, ref I'll go back to one of the founders of, of modern sociology, Emile Durkheim, French sociologist, uh, writing in uh, around the time of the First World War. Um, he coined a, a, a term in French, anomie, which translates into normlessness. And he emphasized that we're social animals that um, it's not our biology or a psychology that is the main explanation for our behavior, but our, our ties to society, um, what he called social facts, to norms, to rules, to other people. And when those ties fray, um, you have less concern about other people. You're more concerned with yourself and what you can do. And for those who are psychoanalytically inclined, uh, which I'm not, but you can, if you use Freud's concepts of id ego and superego, the superego is your conscience, where you care about other people and how your behavior affects them, and your id and your ego are what's good for you, what you want to do. Um, and the weaker your superego, the stronger your id and your ego. So although Durkheim wasn't using those terms, but in a way it illustrates what he's saying. The stronger your ties to other people, the more you care about how your actions will affect them. And you brought up normlessness. Do you mean people acting when they are antisocial or feeling enemy without regard for norms, social norms? Yeah, without thinking about the consequences of, of their behavior. And 
Durkheim, this is a little bit of a, of, a, of a footnote maybe to our discussion. He used the concept of anomie to talk about suicide. One of his explanations for um, a type of suicide he identified, which was anomic suicide, was when people no longer feel their own lives are worth living, they're not satisfying, they don't care enough about how their death will impact other people to go on living. And so for him, that explains certain kinds of suicide rates. What did Emil Durkheim think of capitalism? Uh, he was critical of the power of the markets, of the influence that the economic realm of life had over people. Um, he was not, unlike Marx, however, he was not a socialist. He didn't like socialism. He thought it had a violent aspect to it. I don't know why he thought that exactly. But, um, well, he says human passions stop only before a moral power they respect. Only social rules can prevent abuses of power. That's what he says. And he thinks that when the market, with its emphasis on the economic aspect of life, doing well, making money, having stuff, that all of that weakens the social aspect of us. And our, our, um, we place economic gain over social responsibility. And as capitalism develops, he says, moral forces atrophy. What did Karl Marx say about the importance of people's social existence? To the way they lived and thought. Yeah, there's a famous quote from, from Marx, which at the moment I'm not going to try to, to retrieve, but it's about how it's our social condition creates our consciousness, not our consciousness that creates our social condition. Um, and basically, we are social animals to him as well as Durkheim. So Marx, Durkheim, and a person named Max Weber, who is not so relevant to our discussion, although he's not totally irrelevant, we won't talk about him. Um, they're the great founders of, of modern sociology. And Marx, with his emphasis on the structure of society and particularly how the, what he called the means of production, what we would call technology, and all of the apparatus that creates our, our goods and services. Um, who owns that? What is the relationship of people in that society to that means of production? And out of that comes a major concept for Marx, social classes. So to put it overly simplified, there are the owners and there are the non-owners. And they are particularly in a capitalist society. Not all societies are organized in a capitalist way. Um, but those that aren't, the relationship between the capitalists and those who have to work for them to, to live, to make a living, is an antagonistic one. It's a, it's a relationship of conflict. So this gives rise to what in sociology we call conflict theory. So it's good for the capitalist is probably going to be bad for the worker and vice versa. So it's good for workers to have higher wages and safe working conditions. But for the capitalist, that means less profits generally. So what happens about that? Well, there's a struggle and who will win the struggle and who wins the struggle and how the struggle plays out will be mediated by government and what side it takes in that conflict. And because of the economic power of capitalists, often they win out, but they don't always win out. And so at different times in American history, the working class has been stronger. At other times, it's been weaker. Right now, it's fairly weak, I would have to say, although there are signs of strength as with Starbucks workers and Amazon workers struggling to, to unionize and, and other people as well in, in academia as well, graduate students, adjuncts, faculty trying to demand that they be given decent working and living conditions and also caring about their, their, the people they serve. Nurses are struggling in their workplaces demanding not only that they receive decent wages, but that there be more staffing to protect patients. 
So often when workers struggle, they, they have interests not only for their own direct occupation, but for those that they, they serve. So sometimes union struggles are of um, benefit to people outside of that group of workers. Something to keep in mind when we're asked to take sides in that. That's the voice of Barbara Chasen, Professor Emerita of Sociology at Montclair State University. We are talking about her book, Inequality and Violence in the United States, Casualties of Capitalism, just out in its third edition. Barbara is co-author with Richard Frankie of Kerala, Radical Reform as Development in an Indian State, and co-author with Gerald Chasen of Power and Ideology, a Marxist Approach to Political Sociology. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. So we started this hour talking about the kinds of violence that make the headlines, you know, the blood and guts, the, the shootings, uh, the killings. And in a section about less publicized threats to our well-being, which is really the focus of your book, Inequality and Violence in the United States, you bring up the 1995 heat wave in Chicago, this brutal heat wave when temperatures hit 106 degrees. How much suffering did it cause? At least 739 people died. The study was done by a sociologist named Eric Kleinenberg. It's called Heat Wave. Um, they were mostly African-American um, males, poor, poorer people elderly people. Men were especially likely to be um, living in non-air-conditioned, isolated circumstances, living in single-room occupancy hotels without adequate ventilation. Poorer, older people were afraid to leave their windows open because they heard all the stories about crime, and so they, their places were um, hotter. Um, the federal government under the Reagan administration and subsequent administrations had cut back on low-income energy assistance support at the same time that electricity rates were going up. So the elderly poor didn't have money. Well, no poor people had money to pay for air conditioning. Um, Mayor Daly's uh, city administration had cut back on subsidies for low-cost housing, which might have allowed low-income tenants to have safer places to live. There wasn't enough um, medical services, according to Kleinenberg, for people who had heat-related um, health issues. So a number of, of government policies and policies of landlords, what kind of buildings were they managing, owning, and why didn't they see that they had adequate safety measures uh, for heat? That's important. So would you say this is an, an example of structural violence? Um, it's both structural and organizational. The decisions about the lack of uh, air conditioning, inadequate health services, not providing subsidies so that people could provide either better housing or have access to air conditioning, maybe not having air conditioned shelters that people could go to. Um, all of those would be organizational, but structural would refer to being an African-American male of lower income, what put you in that position, probably centuries of decision-making and, and policy. Some people talk about murder by public policy, and uh, maybe that fits this particular uh, example that you brought up. One of Boeing's planes is the 737 MAX. What high-profile incidents involving this plane occurred in 2018 and 2019? There were two crashes. One was in Ethiopia, one was in Indonesia. A total of 346 people died. This was a response to decisions made by Boeing's executives trying to deal with competitive pressures that they faced in selling their planes. Uh, this plane had greater fuel efficiency, but it also had a 
a feature that pilots didn't know about, which was meant to stabilize the plane better. And critics of Boeing claim they didn't adequately train the pilots in how to use this feature. And when it became necessary to use it, um, they didn't know how, and so the planes went down. And the FAA had not adequately supervised what Boeing's planes features were, and at least one um, FAA safety manager um, ended up being a lobbyist for the aerospace industry. So in general, the Federal Aviation Agency is reputed to have too close a relationship with the industry it's supposed to regulate, but that's not an unusual situation because people from the companies that are supposed to be regulated may wind up in a revolving door situation where they're working in fairly well-paid positions for the companies they were supposed to be uh, controlling in some aspects. And uh, you're not going to get a job with a company if you've been uh, limiting its ability to do what it wants to do, which is make money. And another example of, I think, both organizational and structural violence that you bring up in your book, and your book is full of illustrations, happened on June 24, 2021, when a 12-story high-rise, it's a condominium building called the Champlain Towers South in Surfside, Florida, I think, collapsed, killing 98 people. Why did the building collapse? Well, it collapsed for a number of reasons. One is um, it shouldn't have been where it was. It was built on a foundation of shifting sand, and um, it was built in an area where there's salt, the air is salty as well as the water, and the concrete is susceptible to cracking under those conditions. Um, the area became flooded. One of the things that's happened in, in Florida and, and, and other places is that there, there are these um, trees called mangroves, and they grow in groves. They protect the coast from floods. They, their roots you know, hold back um, the erosion of soil and the consequent flooding of the land. And um, if you have mangroves, you can't build expensive uh, real estate. And people, you know, people want to live in Florida. They want to see the ocean. They want to be warm. And developers are able to decide, unfortunately, too often, what gets built where. And the mangroves were cut down, and this building was put up. And so um, that, that happens. That happens. So this is a particular incident. But, you know, we have disasters all the time maybe even more than we used to. I'm, I don't know, I'm not gonna to try to prove that statistically, but we have floods and fires and so on. And when, when there are those things, who is it who, who gets hurt? Think of Hurricane Katrina, whose homes were mo more destroyed than other people's. Um, in, in recent floodings that have occurred, people who lived in, in basement apartments were more likely to find their their um, dwellings flooded and face drowning even. So that's why this book, There Are No Accidents, is such a valuable book because what seemed to just be, you know, you're you're bad you have bad luck. You happen to wind up in a building that fell down and killed you. But it wasn't just your bad luck. It was a result of decisions that were made by real estate developers and the government officials who loved them and protected them that led to your dying. Barbara Chasen is my guest. We are talking about her book, Inequality and Violence in the United States, Casualties of Capitalism, which is just out in its third edition. We have a link to that book on our website, againstthegrain.org. I'm CS, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. And you've talked about this a little bit, but, you know, sometimes there are, like, heads of corporations that are 
sued for, you know, their they and their staff, their engineers knew about a defective product and yet they put it out there and it was used by people and it caused a number of deaths. I mean, to what extent do the perpetrators of organizational and structural violence, to what extent are they held accountable for their actions? There are examples. Um, often the punishment is a fine, maybe community service. They rarely do prison time. You know, the ability to make the laws and assign punishments is a political process. So what is legal? What is illegal? What is punishable at a, as, a, as a technically a crime, legally a crime? What's a, a civil suit that will have less publicity, less punishment? All of those are political decisions and having the ability to influence those is a very powerful uh, advantage to those who, who can influence the political process more than, say, street criminals. So uh, a person who's selling dangerous, illegal drugs uh, may be responsible for, for deaths and, and illness and things like that, and may even carry a gun and be involved in, in uh, interpersonal violence. But people who manufacture tobacco, how many of them went to, went to prison? They knew tobacco killed people. They still manufactured it. They sold it. They advertised it. Drug dealers, illegal drug dealers, can have billboards and advertising campaigns, um, which helps explain the violence of drug traffickers. Cigarette manufacturers don't have to go out and sort of coerce people into using their product. They just have to make them addicting enough so that people will continue to buy it. A lot more people died from tobacco and die from tobacco-related illnesses. The um, opioid ep epidemic that many of us have heard about, you know, that was uh, done by a pharmaceutical company owned by a family, the Sacklers. They've been somewhat called to account, but I don't think any of them are in prison for selling addicting opioids that have led to great harm. So Barbara, uh, you also have a discussion of militarism in your book. And you quote Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. saying in a famous speech in April 1967 that the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today is my own government. What do you think of that statement? I think it's very apropos. And I think that um, he really raised a very, very important point because the mil militarism is connected to all of the three types of violence that we've identified previously, interpersonal, organizational, structural. Okay, so interpersonal violence, is that as straightforward as people killing each other with weapons in war? Uh, yes, that would be part of militarism. And I think that's what King had in mind with this, with this quote, that he was um, asking how could he how could he ask young, angry black men to espouse nonviolence when our own government was engaged in massive violence and a number of them had probably been in the military themselves? So that then he was thinking of, of the kind of interpersonal violence that soldiers engage in. There's other interpersonal violence that, that I'd like to quickly mention connected with the military. There's a lot of gender violence that goes on that I, I don't know that he had that in mind. There's sexual assaults, there's rapes associated with the military, both in foreign theaters, but also domestically. Um, there's even self-directed violence when soldiers and former soldiers kill themselves. And there's apparently a fairly high, high rate of that. And even after their military service, some soldiers take the idea that they need to defend our country and join paramilitary groups, such as those that attacked the Capitol on January 6th um, of 2021. So, so that's, I think, connects to um, his quote to interpersonal violence. And let me just mention one other thing as a kind of a footnote to this. Exactly one year later after this speech, and I'm not saying it was because of the speech, but it's an interesting fact, King was assassinated. 
himself a victim of interpersonal and maybe organizational violence. We don't have all the facts yet about, about that. What about organizational violence? What, what dimensions of organizational violence do you think Dr. King was gesturing toward or that you think it makes sense that anyone speaking about uh, the Vietnam War would gesture toward? Oh, well, and any military operation is, is organizational violence. It's, it's created by military bureaucracy um, and organization, obviously, and uh, that plans and carries out the military operation. So I think that's pretty, in a way, kind of obvious, as is the interpersonal violence. What may be a little more subtle is another point that, that King raised because besides talking about our government being the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today and what that means, he also noted this disparity between what the government spent to kill an alleged enemy soldier compared to what it spent on programs for the poor. And that, that has an organizational aspect because those are decisions made by political organizations, by bureaucracies, how money will be budgeted and reflects, I think, values. But in addition, it has a structural aspect and the huge sums of money that are spent on war and preparing for war means that there's less money to spend on social needs. And we often hear the saying by politicians, oh, you can't just throw money at a problem and solve it and therefore we're not gonna throw money at it and try to solve it. But nobody ever says that in government, at least, about the military. We can't keep funding the military and having wars that, if we think about it, don't do any good to anybody except the military companies that provide the, the, the weapons and maybe help politicians get elected on the misconceived idea that they're actually doing something for the country, a dubious proposition. So the, the, the war in Afghanistan, for example, cost over $2 trillion, not to mention the tens of thousands of, of lives lost, both American and, and of course, even worse, Afghanis. Um, and who benefited from that? If you look at Afghanistan today, is it, is it better off because the U.S. was involved there militarily? And I think the answer is clearly no. Is anybody here better off except the companies that got huge contracts to carry that war out? So that, that's just one example. I mean, we spend tremendous amounts of money on war. There's a, a journalist, uh, an author named William Bloom, who, who conceptualizes the huge amounts that uh, go into uh, the military. He said that he wrote, in one year the U.S. spends on the military more than $17,000 per hour for every hour since Jesus Christ was born. So he picked that particular date. There are other ways you can conceptualize the huge amounts of money involved, but I think his quote gives a nice succinct idea. Your last chapter, this chapter in your book, Inequality and Violence in the United States, has the title Reducing the Casualties, by which you mean, I take it, the casualties of capitalism, the subtitle of your book. How do we go about doing this, reducing the casualties? Well, we learn from history, and we learn from the struggles that have existed in the past many of which have been successful. At any given moment, things often look very dismal. Um, who would have predicted the end of slavery? Who would have predicted that Jim Crow would at least be lessened? <laughs> who would have predicted that women would get the, the right to vote? And there'd be eight hour days and legislation to protect workers and a whole host of things that have been you know, achieved not by any government largesse, not by some politician saying, oh, I ought to be nicer to these people, or by a company saying, oh, I ought to treat my workers better, but because people organized, they struggled, they made sacrifices, some of them died, um, 
And as a result of that, the system changed. Um, the system can't go on if people just do what they're told to do or accustomed to do. So things like marches and protests of all kinds, boycotts, sit-ins, strikes, all of those are things that, that make a real difference. But then there's something very simple that makes a difference. Not everybody wants to go on a march. Not everybody's in a position where they could strike or, you know, do some of these other things I mentioned. But at least all those eligible by U.S. laws have a right to vote. And that right is not exercised as much as it needs to be. The U.S. has one of the lowest voter turnout rates of any uh, advanced democratic country. And that's getting even harder to do as politicians, particularly right-wing ones, Republicans especially, put more obstacles in the way of people exercising this most fundamental democratic right that so many have fought and, as I said earlier, even died for. So getting out there and voting is absolutely crucial. And it, it, it doesn't take a lot to do that. Although, as I said, it is getting a little harder, but it's still relatively easy compared to some of the other things that, that are involved in making change. I've been joined by Barbara Chasen, again, C-H-A-S-I-N, Professor Emerita of Sociology at Montclair State University. Her book, Inequality and Violence in the United States, Casualties of Capitalism, is just out in the third edition. Uh, Barbara, thank you so much for your work and for writing this book and putting it out in a number of editions and for joining us today. Thank you. And this is CS, suggesting the important thing is not to stop questioning, as Albert Einstein once said, and we hope you'll join us next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. You can visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio, resources, and more. You can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio, and you can follow us on Twitter at Radio Against.